Well, welcome everyone to the gathering here today entitled Trump, Ethics, and the Law. I should note that this panel discussion as a result will end approximately three days, 11 hours, and 47 <laughs> minutes from now. I'm Dave Leventhal. I'm the senior political reporter for the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit investigative news organization in Washington, D.C. And we have quite an all-star panel with us today. They almost need no introduction. However, we will introduce them anyway. And uh, starting to my right is somebody who uh, Donald Trump probably knows quite well, and that is Walter Schaub, who uh, up until July, mid-July this year, was the director of the Office of Government Ethics and is now with the Campaign Legal Center, another nonprofit in Washington, D.C. Next up is Matthew Miller. Matthew is currently a partner at Vianovo, a strategic advisory firm for brand policy and crisis issues. He previously led the Department of Justice's communications team under President Barack Obama and was a spokesperson for Eric Holder. Going down the line, uh, Mr. Richard Painter, uh, who is the chief ethics lawyer for George W. Bush from 2005 to 2007, and most recently has been, uh, at, at, you're the co-chairperson, am I correct? I'm the vice chair. Vice chairperson yeah. of Citizens for Responsibility for uh, Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, uh, and is also a law professor in Minnesota. And to my extreme left, I guess one could say, uh, appearing on the extreme left for the first time, uh, <laughs> is Judge Ken Starr, uh, who has a resume that we could go on and on, uh, the highlights, of course, uh, Solicitor General of the United States, a federal judge, the Chancellor and President of Baylor University, and uh, perhaps best known by all of us who were around in the 1990s as uh, independent counsel investigating, uh, at the time, President Bill Clinton. Thank you. Thank you. So the topic, of course, is Donald Trump. Here we are today in 2017, and I'd like you all first to weigh in on this one question. For the course of one year, is Donald Trump's presidency the most ethically challenged presidency in your estimation? And if not, whose was? We'll start with Walt. Well, it's a tough question to answer because I don't know much about the tenure of Millard Fillmore, but um, <laughs> at least going back to the Ethics and Government Act's passage, I don't think we've had anything that would even come close to rivaling the kind of ethical concerns that we're seeing now. Well, as somebody who was born in Millard Fillmore Hospital in Buffalo, New York, I, you know, will have to talk. I did my research, yeah. my oppo research. Excellent. Uh, Matt? Um, I, I'm going to give the, start with the same disclaimer uh, as Walt, if, even though that might disappoint my former UT professors on, of the American presidency. I don't remember uh, everyone dating back in, to the 19th century. But I think if you look at, at modern history, we've never before obviously had a president who was invest under investigation for obstruction of justice for acts that started seven days after he took office. Um, we've never had a president who's been under investigation for um, uh, actions that happened during his campaign this soon into his first year in office. Uh, and of course, we can talk about uh, the president and, and will to no end, but 
you also have to look at his cabinet. And um, one of the things I think actual challenges of you know, what reporters have covering Washington is all of those of us who, who care what happens in Washington have is, is Donald Trump sucks up so much attention, we miss a lot of the other kind of institutional corruption that's happening across Washington. Look at the, you know, the last month, uh, the revelations about the Treasury Secretary flying on government planes when his predecessors didn't. Um, the HHS Secretary flying on government planes when none of his predecessors did. So I think, um, you know, when you look at the way this administration um, uh, vetted people, appointed people who have never served in government before, which is fine in theory, they're quality upstanding people, uh, ignored the advice of people like Walt uh, about how to set up uh, appointees free from, from uh, conflicts of interest. I think you're gonna see, you know, we, we've obviously seen a, a, a huge ethical challenge to start the administration, and I think there are problems lying in wait that we're only gonna begin to find about, out about in the next few months. Richard. Well, I told my 12-year-old uh, son the other day that uh, when I was 12 years old, my eyes were glued to the television, uh, watching the Watergate hearings. And I still remember Senator uh, Sam Irwin. Oh, boy, he didn't want to mess with him. Uh, you know, <laughs> back in those days, they had oversight in Congress. And uh, uh, President Nixon went down. Um, but I've, I've got to say uh, uh, that I think President Nixon has really been given a raw deal. Look, okay, maybe it was a crook, but, but at least it was our crook. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look at that, that, that uh, Watergate job. Third-rate burglary, a bunch of buffoons didn't know what to do, even know what to do with the masking tape or whatever. Uh, okay, the break into the Democratic Party headquarters. This time it's a high-tech job done by a bunch of ex-KGB agents. And of course there was no collaboration, just a meeting at the Trump Tower with the top press of his campaign, a bunch of Russians <laughs> at Dirt on Hillary. So, I, I think that President Nixon uh, has moved on down to the number two spot on this uh, <laughs> ethics issues. <laughs> a very rough start, and I can't think of a parallel. Uh, your question does remind me that President Reagan's first national security advisor was gone almost uh, immediately because of questions, not the kinds of questions that have been raised with respect to, to General Flynn. There have been untidy administrations in the past, but usually it takes a while to see these kinds of issues develop as opposed to the coming in issues. Uh, also to have a campaign manager, although dismissed from the campaign, with now this bucket full of legal issues and the ties to, shall I say, questionable people in foreign places with strange sounding names, I think it's completely unique. Quantitatively, I would have to honestly go back, and I'm serious about this, and look at the untidy administration of Ulysses S. Grant. That administration got into trouble fairly quickly because of the, just the emergence of corruption. Corruption had been an enormous problem in the Civil War, enormous. And it's one of the reasons that Honest Abe, and I mean that, uh, said we need a statute, uh, and it was called the False Claims Act, that really goes after these very bad characters. Well, some of those very bad characters found their way into government. Uh, so I don't know about quantitatively, but this is just, it's, it's terrible for the country. It's terrible for the country when our presidents get into trouble at whatever time. If it's self-inflicted, then you just say, well, they shouldn't have done this or done 
done that. But um, I think, uh, I'll go ahead and jump ahead and say, I think we all hope that Bob Mueller gets to the bottom of things, that the Senate Intelligence Committee gets to the bottom of things, and I'm sure we'll chat about the, what I see is the confluence. It's not just the Mueller investigation, but it's what's happening on Capitol Hill. And I'm so glad Richard mentioned Senator Sam Irvin, because the breakthrough in terms of the discovery of the Watergate tapes came out of the United States Senate. Well, we're talking about ethics and the law, and as we know, what is unethical, even patently unethical, isn't necessarily illegal. Do you believe, and, and let's stay with you for a moment, Judge Starr, do you believe that Donald Trump at this point has done anything that, in your estimation, would be considered illegal, or do you think that this is just going to have to come out in the wash uh, over the course of what still could be a many months investigation? The latter, because uh, I was very nervous so to speak, as a citizen, to know that the President of the United States was having all these interactions with the director of the FBI. Uh, that should not have occurred. It's not illegal, but it's very unwise. It's very imprudent. And then what was said in those conversations, we've had the benefit of former Director Comey's testimony as to, as to what happened. I listened very carefully to that. My own view was, and I'm pretty familiar with obstruction of justice, it didn't amount to obstruction from what I heard, from what I heard. But of course, Bob Mueller is gathering the entirety of the evidence and from that making the conclusions. And, I think it's too, and you know him too personally. soon to tell. You know him personally. Is he the man for the job? And, Absolutely. and should he stay there and not be potentially sent off by either Donald Trump or, or the Department well, of Justice, would, which ultimately would have to do it. Well, depending on the day, it would be a Saturday night massacre uh, because Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, is a person of total integrity. Uh, and uh, so the president would, in this doomsday scenario, <clears throat> have to fire Rosenstein because I don't think Rod would agree. Uh, the Attorney General has already recused himself, so then it becomes, again, the Saturday Night Massacre. It's not just the fall of Archibald Cox. We lost an Attorney General and a Deputy Attorney General who had made commitments to the United States Senate during their confirmation that they would protect the independence of the then Special Prosecutor, now we call it Special Counsel. Uh, and uh, when I read the regulations of the Department of Justice that guide the exercise of judgment with respect to the exercise to the appointment of a special counsel. Uh, I think if Donald Trump, heaven forbid, said he's got to go, Rod Rosenstein would say, I hereby resign. And what's the point? The Senate Intelligence Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and there'll be another special counsel in any event, because the regulations uh, and I'm sorry, but one last point. The regulations have the force of law, but they can be revoked in contrast to the special prosecutor or independent counsel provisions, which were law passed by Congress, signed into law uh, by the President of the United States. So they could be rescinded, but until they are by the Attorney General, they have the force of law. And while you were itching to make a point, well, I, I just wanted to say that I agree with Judge Starr, and I think both Judge Starr and, and Mr. Miller here could tell us all just how long investigations take before they uncover their, you know, reveal their final findings. Um, and so we can't rule out that there's been illegality, but we can't know for sure yet, and we should keep an open mind as the facts are developed. 
But I think what we do know, and Judge Starr alluded to this, is that we've had some very significant departures from the ethical and civic norms of the executive branch and indeed our country as a whole. And one of the problems with that is the ethics laws in particular, but also a lot of our other laws, were predicated on the idea that there were certain norms in place. And so the laws factor in that those are gonna be followed. When they're not followed, we suddenly discover how completely vulnerable our system is. And so it begins with a president who railed against his rival for being connected to a not-for-profit organization. You know, I, I agree with those who say she would have had to resolve that conflict of interest, but again, we're talking about a not-for-profit organization. Suddenly, we have a president retaining an interest in a for-profit organization that's not running around fighting AIDS in Africa. It's bringing in money directly to that president. That first departure from our ethical norms set a tone from the top that has now gone trickling down through the administration. And I can tell you from my dealings with them that it was night and day dealing with this White House and dealing with past White Houses. And just to illustrate what things used to look like, I'll just give you one brief anecdote. Uh, Richard Painter and I were working on a nominee during the Bush administration who was a very high profile nominee. Normally they're not announced until we are done with all of our work and we can say, okay, go ahead and announce them and then you can send them up to the Senate. In this case, there were some real time sensitivities. There was an event that the person had to be at. And so we got most of the work done and were able to give the White House a read saying, we don't think there's any showstoppers here, so go ahead and announce, but we have to finish the cleanup work. And in one of the calls with the individual's attorney afterwards, the attorney just gently pushed back on one of the details as maybe an attorney who's getting paid by clients would do to test the waters to see what the best deal they could get for their client is. And all of a sudden, ringing out across the phone is Richard screaming, your client doesn't have to have this job. And that came at incredible cost to Richard because the president had already stuck his neck out and said he was gonna handle, you know, be nominating this individual. And I wouldn't have wanted to be in the room if Richard went and said, oh, I, I got rid of your guy. Uh, he's not going forward. Uh, but Richard took a strong stand and it caused the attorney to immediately say, okay, okay, what do we have to do? And that's the minute when I learned what an ethics official should really be. And I tried to live up to the standard that Richard set. But that was also the culture because Richard knew for sure that he had a president who cared about government ethics. You may agree with the policies and, and views of President Bush or President Obama, uh, but I will tell you, both of those White Houses were extremely supportive of the government ethics program and of OGE in particular. And the experience we're having now is very consistent with a president saying, I can't have conflicts of interest. I'm just going to keep my money and, you know, my holdings and I'm going to go to all of my properties and I'm going to announce, you know, when I'm going there and bring the press there and I'm going to endorse private companies solely because they supported me and I'm going to wear a hat that I'm hawking online while I'm speaking at a hurricane disaster uh, session with the press. And... Um, I don't think you could paint a starker contrast. Well, Matt, uh, that raises a point of whether the president is 
above the law? Can the president be above the law? You were at the Department of Justice. Where, where do you see this falling, and how does that contrast with the way that the DOJ was able to operate in previous administrations? Yeah. Well, theoretically, he can be above the law, but there are a number of laws that he's exempt from. And as we're finding out, as Walt just pointed out, there are a number of norms that presidents have always adhered to in the past that Donald Trump just doesn't care about. And I think the, you know, if you look at all of them, the one that, that has always worried me the most is the thing that kind of prevents America from becoming a banana republic, and that is the traditional independence of the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. Um, this idea that no matter what else happens, the Justice Department makes its own decisions about who to investigate, who not to investigate, who to prosecute, who not to prosecute. And there's nothing in, con in the Constitution, there's nothing in law, there's nothing in federal regulation that sets it up that way. The presidents theoretically could call attorneys general and say, you know what, I want you to prosecute, I want you to lock up, lock her up, I want you to lock up my former political opponent, and that's perfectly legal. Attorneys general and presidents have always recognized, and especially in the post-Watergate era, that that is a, you know, that fundamentally for the rule of law to have any meaning, it needs to be removed from politics. And Trump showed during the campaign with the locker-up chance during the transition, when he openly speculated about um, whether Hillary should be prosecuted, whether she should, she should not be prosecuted, and then through, you know, through nine months in office that he doesn't care about that in a theoretical sense. Um, I don't think he ever was seriously, you know, I don't think the prosecution of Hillary Clinton was ever something that was taken seriously by him or by Attorney General Sessions. But also in a sense that really matters, when you have him asking the FBI director for a loyalty pledge, when you have him ask, asking him to back off uh, uh, an investigation into his former national security advisor, uh, and then when you have him firing him, when you have the president firing the FBI director when you won't do it. it, it it matters in a very real sense, and I, I suspect we are still going to find, we're still going to face one, at least one, very big flashpoint before the end of the Russia investigation, where Bob Mueller is going to get too close to a member of Donald Trump's family, he's going to get too close to a member of the president himself, and the, the president is going to force a Saturday Night Massacre type situation where he tries to rescind the rules governing the appointment of the special prosecutor so he can fire him, or whether he fires his way down the Justice Department to do it, or whether he pardons everyone involved in the case. And it, was gonna, it is going to, how we respond to that, and whether Republicans in Congress see that as a red line, is gonna answer that question of whether the president is above the law or not. Well, Richard, I'd like you to weigh in on a point that Matt brought up um, a moment ago, which is the idea of political norms, that you had presidents, at least in modern history, who more or less would uh, adhere to certain standards. Uh, there, there was sort of a, uh, John McCain might say, uh, you know, regular order of uh, the way that presidents would act, uh, both in the campaign and also when in office. And that could be everything from how they release their healthcare records to how they release their tax returns. We, we could mention a, a dozen and one of them. Uh, do we need more laws? Does Congress need to weigh in in a way that would effectively take those norms, take the ethical standards, and, and codify them, put them into law? I just think we need a sense of decency. I, I don't think that bringing in a bunch of rules. Um, I mean, for example, you're not going to have a rule saying that after you won an election, you don't keep trashing on the person you just beat in the election. Uh, whether or not she actually won the popular vote. I mean, you just, you, you actually do your job as president. Uh, if we had had anyone in the Bush White House who was mouthing off about Al Gore or John Kerry, 
uh, the way these people, including the president, mouth off about Hillary Clinton, we would have fired them on the spot. I mean, the election's <laughs> over for crying out loud. So that makes no sense. Um, then this thing that happened over there in, in Huntsville uh, two days ago, I mean, I looked at that. Is this Huntsville, Alabama in, in 2017 or in Nuremberg, Germany in 1933? I mean, this is terrible. You got people in a crowd screaming, lock her up. And you think the president of the United States would not sink to the level of that uh, 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 type of person in the crowd. And then he said, well, you can talk to Jeff Sessions about that. Uh, once again, he should be there to act presidential and uh, to talk about policies. If he's got a health care bill, I haven't heard about any actual proposals, but if he's actually got a real health care bill to propose instead of Obamacare, okay, this is why what I want to do is better. Uh, talk about what he's going to do for our country rather than this uh, trashing on uh, his opponent, trashing on the media. That's another thing that's reminiscent out of what was going on in Germany in the 30s. I know that President Nixon didn't like the press and said a bunch of stuff, particularly behind closed doors, but uh, the constant uh, ranting about the media and the press, uh, we've never seen that from an American uh, president before. And then there's a lack of respect for the United States Constitution. Uh, the role of judges. I mean, we don't have so-called judges in the United States. We've got judges. We also don't have white judges, black judges, Mexican judges. We have judges. <laughs> and he's not showing respect there. Uh, and he's not showing respect uh, for the anti-corruption provisions in the Constitution. And uh, that includes this emoluments clause. I know they like to talk a lot of Latin back when they drafted the Constitution. If we drafted it in Illinois, where I was growing up in the 1970s, they would have called it the payola clause. <laughs> but it's, you know, you no know, foreign government profits or benefits for anyone in the United States government or the position of trust in the United States government without the consent of Congress. And uh, if he doesn't agree with our view on the emoluments clause, he can go to Congress and work a deal out with the Republican Congress. But I think they want to see his tax returns and find out how many rubles are in there. But. Uh, <laughs> he's got to respect the Constitution or he's not going to keep this job. But <laughs> but, but you'll have, what do you'll you really have, think, Richard? Yeah. <laughs> what? I'm glad I don't have to follow him next. <laughs> well, Richard, uh, you might have uh, plenty of people, uh, some might say tens of millions of people around the country who voted for Donald Trump and said, well, we knew exactly what we were getting with Donald Trump. All of America should have known exactly what we were getting with Donald Trump. We voted for him because we believe that he could make America great again. And you know what? He's running a different kind of presidency than his predecessors. We knew that too coming in, and he's now president of the United States. What do you say to the argument of let him be president of the United States? Let him do things a different way. We elected him to do it that way. So who are we to say that he can't now? And they, and they trusted him, just, just like the people bought those New Jersey casino bonds back in the early 90s. And, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that when the people aren't getting paid, uh, it's pretty clear he didn't do the job there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think people voted for him, believing that he could make this transition and be an effective president. Uh, they did not vote for him to come into office and continually rant about the person he defeated in the election. They did not vote for him to come into office and ignore uh, the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Uh, they did not vote uh, to have a, a national security advisor who uh, lied about his contacts with the Russians. 
Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. So uh, people voted for Donald Trump to be president in accordance with the Constitution of the United States, uh, not to be a king. Uh, they, people did not vote to rescind the Constitution. And so once again, he's either got to uh, do his job in accordance with the Constitution or he's got to get out of there. Good start. Did, did Bill Clinton in the late 90s or Donald Trump in the late 2010s, uh, the situation overall with their presidencies, which one posed a greater concern uh, in your estimation for, for the country? And, and did one more so than the other pose an existential crisis, I guess one could say? Well, I, my mission was very specific and, and focused and obviously grew. Uh, the, the <laughs> and, authorized and, and the started, attorney, it's authorized by the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno. But the investigation uh, started in 1993. Yeah. Well, it actually had begun uh, earlier. Uh, it had a, a, a long history. But the point is, that was targeted. What I think we're now talking about is an ethos. The biggest complaint that I remember before I was appointed as independent counsel was that there was a sense of hubris, uh, a sense of arrogance, uh, charming, but nonetheless arrogance, illustrated by the firing of the hapless seven career persons in the travel office, off with their heads. Not a crime, but not very pretty. And these were career civil servants who by definition, had served during Republican and Democratic administrations. Poor form. Uh, a gentleman named Craig Livingstone was brought in uh, very early on to head the White House Office of Personnel Records. Off with their heads. So the heads, who were career people, were sent packing. And Craig Livingstone, uh, and I have nothing against Craig Livingstone, but what was his qualification to be handling the most sensitive information in the hands, in terms of personnel information, in the hands of the federal government. He had played Pinocchio at uh, George Bush 41 campaign rallies. He had dressed up as a chicken at campaign rallies. And so what's his very first job uh, to reward him, to the victory to go to the spoils? So it was a certain Jacksonian quality, uh, I thought, and a lack of respect for what we've heard about here, the traditional norms. There are certain functions, even in the White House, that are best carried on by career people who know what they're doing. So I think presidents would be well advised <laughs> to be, and I think this is one of our themes, be aware of those norms, be respectful of those norms. And even if you've been brought in as a transformational president, uh, in, in a very narrow election, losing the, the, the popular vote quite handily by you know, three million uh, votes, uh, that suggests to me the wisdom of let's build a coalition, let's reach across the aisle and so forth. Uh, and that's just not what we've seen. That's not what he intends to do. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Look what he's done recently. Uh, let, let's, let's make a deal. And I was told, by the way, if you read his, and I haven't, the art of the deal, you will understand him. Not Newt Gingrich's understanding Trump. Just read his The Art of the Deal. He's here to make deals. And that's all the more reason he needs lots of lawyers around him. Well, do you see any parallels between Bill Clinton at, at the uh, vanguard of being impeached uh, and Donald Trump today the, being investigated? Or is that just not a comparison that, that should be easily made? It obviously depends on the made? evidence. The, 
the impeachment went forward really on the grounds of perjury. So has the president been under oath? If this president gets under oath, and that was very interesting, one of the fascinating things that we now understand about the strategic decision made by President Clinton in 1998 was when there were revelations of this relationship, uh, Dick Morris, by his account, great, brilliant guy, uh, who had advised President, he is a, a very brilliant guy, he helped orchestrate the reelection campaign in 96. And so the president uh, is chatting with him. This is all according to Morris. And the, what did you do and so forth. And so he posed, uh, uh, Morris posed two questions in the overnight poll. Will the American people uh, forgive an extramarital relationship? The answer was yes. Will the American people forgive perjury? The answer was no. Very interesting. And when the entire episode unfolded and it became clear that there were these serious questions, there was a huge bipartisan cry for the president to testify truthfully before the grand jury. And then what happened happened then. I think that if there had been uh, a, a, a resolution discussed to let's, let's have censorship plus with some kind of punishment that I think thoughtful people would have rallied around it. There was a formalistic sense it's impeachment or nothing because Andrew Jackson was censured and he went on as before. But I think that was what the American people felt was an appropriate response to what happened. That is, even perjury, which most people thought was proven, was insufficiently related to the conduct of office. So I think that's one of the things to come back to Donald Trump. Is his activity, does he commit some crime, and it's a question, in the uh, and obstruction of justice is looked at. And if you look at the charge of Robert Mueller, you'll see it's perjury, obstruction of justice, intimidation of witnesses, what constitutes intimidation. So there are going to be some very neat questions. All this to say, don't, you, you can say what you want to on Twitter, but if you're under oath, be very, very cautious. Well, Matt, uh, Judge Starr, of course, during the 90s was a independent counsel, and with that came certain powers. Uh, People, of course, may remember the Starr report uh, that came out at uh, the end of the work that, that you did, which laid out the case that you had made. Uh, does today, 20 years or so later, uh, does the Mueller investigation have the requisite tools to do a proper investigation? Is this a bombshell waiting to happen, or is this something, because there will be no Mueller report, uh, because there is a difference between what happened 20 years ago and today, is this something that uh, has the potential to fizzle even if Donald Trump does nothing at all in terms of dispatching him or whatnot? Um, I think the only way it, it, it fizzles would be if Bob Mueller completes his investigation and finds that the president d didn't do anything wrong, um, in which case, um, you know, one of the things about appointing someone like Bob Mueller, so widely respected, uh, if he comes to that conclusion, I think there are a lot of people like me that would look at it and say, I, I agree that that's probably the right outcome. I, I trust Bob Mueller to come to that conclusion. But there are a number of ways this could end. I know when, when Ken Starr was running his team, they looked at the question of whether the president could be indicted, and some outside uh, scholars you recruited said yes. 
Um, there were uh, prosecutors on the special prosecutors team during Watergate that looked at the same question and said yes. I think that would be a, it'd be a difficult thing to accomplish. Indicting the president it would raise all kinds of constitutional questions that ultimately go to the Supreme Court. Um, but short of that, you know, Bob Mueller can write a report of his own at the end, or um, when you look at the tools he has, there's a Watergate precedent uh, when Leon Jaworski finished his investigation and indicted a number of people, um, which I think it's pretty clear there are going to be people that are indicted uh, as a result of this investigation, Paul Manafort, likely uh, General Flynn. He named Richard Nixon as a, an indicted co-conspirator and then wrote a grand jury report and with the judge's approval, turned that grand jury report over to Congress, over to the impeachment committee, the Watergate committee, and that sort of became the basis. It was like the Starr report. It wasn't a, officially a report to Congress, but sort of served that purpose. So Mueller has both, you know, I think we all understand the investigative tools that he has, the power of subpoena, the power of the grand jury, but he has a lot of tools at his disposal at the end in terms of reaching conclusions, and if he decides that indictment isn't the appropriate way for it, if he two things. If he decides the president violated the law in his estimation, but that indictment isn't the way forward, he has a couple of different ways to put that in the hands of Congress and tee up the question of whether they are willing to you know, take a look at those questions and act. And, and uh, of course, he could go on for many months. Uh, this all started really around the issue of whether there was any collusion with Russians, be it Donald Trump himself personally, his family <clears throat> members, his campaign. Do you think that the investigation should go forward uh, in different directions that would be related to potentially, but not necessarily at the core of the original purpose for, for going forward with this? If you look at his original mandate, it is very broad. Uh, it talks about any links between the president or associates of his campaign and the Russian government. Um, that could include uh, links from the campaign. It could also include um, uh, links from the president's financial dealings, if he had any dealings with the Russian government or intermediaries. Uh, it includes uh, any other matters that arise directly from the investigation. And I think Bob Mueller, with Rod Rosenstein's approval, would interpret that as, if I'm over flipping up rocks about this and I find something not related, but that I see, I have the authority to go look at it. And then any obstruction of justice questions that come up. So he has a number of, uh, you know, I think he has a very broad mandate. And in terms of timing, you know, typically Department of Justice investigations like this take a long time. Um, Bob Mueller is not the kind of person that lets grass grow under his feet. And if you look at the way he's moving already, you know, people, I, I, there, was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of people surprised at how aggressive he's been at, uh, to, to, to Paul Manafort, that FBI agents picked the lock and you know, showed up in his bedroom and woke him up, um, and that they're, they're moving so quickly with, with threats of indictment. Take a look at this from Bob Mueller's standpoint. If you stop back, you know, we kind of get a daily barrage of this thing happens and this thing happens. Take, take a step back and look at the president's son had a meeting with uh, a, a Russian lawyer, the pretext of which was to receive information about how the Russian government wanted to help elect the president. The president's campaign chairman was overheard on intercepts talking with either Russian intelligence officials or intermediaries of Russian intelligence officials. The president's national security advisor was overheard uh, on uh, intercepts talking with the Russian ambassador. We don't know exactly about what, but enough that the, the Department of Justice thought it was inappropriate and warned the White House. The president himself and his public statements uh, can best be described as um, uh, being extremely solicitous of the Russian government. So if you ask why is Bob Mueller moving so quickly, you know, he's looking at this not like a white collar investigation, 
but as you know, a, a criminal enterprise and taking it like a, you know, a drug trafficking enterprise. This is, in some ways, the most important investigation the Department of Justice has ever conducted. It goes to the question of whether the President of the United States himself has been compromised by a foreign power. You're damn right he's moving it as aggressively as he can and is going to do it as quickly as he can. So, Walt, with everything Matt just said as a backdrop, why did you leave in July? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I put up as good a fight as I could. I think I had some wins, and I can talk about those, but they started sort of adapting to the strategies, and I reached the point where I didn't think I could achieve more in there. And when you say adapting, was there anything specific that they did that really, really made you... Displays. Well, this. Uh, <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs> Some of it's just the sheer lack of transparency. That the most effective thing they did was cut us off, um, and for that I have to give you a little brief background with. Presidential nominees to the Senate for confirmation, OGE has a lot of leverage. We, we were able to tell the nominees, you're not going to get a Senate hearing until we finish the work with you, so let's get this all done. And that was one of the wins we had. We used that leverage, that leverage effectively. And, and I had to really fight for it because uh, the Senate started threatening to have hearings even without waiting for OGE to finish. And if they had done that, we would have lost our leverage. So I wrote fairly hot letters um, in, in ethics-y terms, hot. Um, <laughs> there's a certain decorum in Washington, and I was trying to stay within the norms, but hot within those norms, um, to the Senate committees. And I, I sent that off there, and then I thought, oh boy, I hope this works. And it did. They backed off. and rescheduled the hearings and we moved as fast as we could to get those done. Um, and as a result, for a while, you were seeing ethics holding a little bit better out at the agencies than at the White House. There's agency ethics officials on site, their career people, as Judge Starr said, the career people are invested in the process and the system working. Um, more recently, the tone from the top we've discovered is trickling down and you've got these fabulous jet flights with a sofa and a kitchenette and um, all kinds of things uh, from several cabinet officials. Um, so we were effective there, but with the White House appointees, they, the system is set up differently. They come into government, we don't get their financial disclosures first, they're not even due until they're in the government for 30 days. The White House can give two 45-day extensions. They can then take anywhere from 60 to 120 days before they send the reports to OGE. And so we didn't have the chance to resolve conflicts of interest. And the White House ethics officials not only didn't want to fulfill their responsibilities in, in support of ethics, they didn't know how. These guys just weren't competent to do it and turned us down for training. Um, and so when we finally started getting these financial disclosure reports trickling in and we're looking at the potential conflicts of interest of the White House officials, we then asked the White House to explain, well, what does this person do for a living? Or what does that person do for a living all day at the White House? Mum's the word, they're not telling us. And so they won't give us information. 
And I was in the position where I was ultimately going to wind up having to sign off on financial disclosure reports that were technically compliant with disclosure rules, as far as I could tell, but I had no information about what the people were doing for a living. And I didn't want my signature vouching for these individuals and saying they had no conflicts. But the biggest thing that was sort of the, the last straw for me was when I fought a battle for 30 days to get my hands on just the most basic ethics records. Um, OGE has the power to collect from within the executive branch um, any kind of ethics records, and these were waivers. I told them, release these secret waivers that we're hearing you're issuing. And they fought us, and they actually had Mick Mulvaney, the head of OMB, write a letter to me and copy every single general counsel and every single ethics official in the government. So it was a letter sent to hundreds of people saying, we don't think you have the authority to collect this. Well, the thing is, collecting documents and reviewing them is pretty much what OGE does all day long. So if we were out of that business, we could have all just gone home. Uh, so I fought back really quite hard on that and, and ultimately prevailed and got them to release these waivers. As late as Monday, the week they released them, they were saying, we're not going to release them. And then Wednesday, they released them. I later heard from somebody a rumor that Grassley's office may have called over there. I had quoted something from Grassley at the end of the letter where he had demanded that um, um, uh, the Obama administration release waivers, so I thought the language fit perfectly here. I put that in. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if Grassley did call over there, but in any event, they released them. And the waivers were unsigned, undated. Most of them were retroactive. Two of them were issued by a person to himself. Um, <laughs> and so the secret of the secret waivers was that there were no secret waivers. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And then when they got caught with their pants down, they had to scramble to gin up some waivers. And if you look at the metadata in them, it's pretty clear they worked on this one for an hour, and then this one, and then this one. So they ginned them up that day. And I thought, good Lord, if these guys are willing to essentially come one step short of forging government records, there's not a whole lot more that OGE with no investigative authority can do in this job. And that was pretty much the thing that sunk in on me after a while, and I thought, there isn't going to be more I can do in this job. Well, David Apel, the successor who's now leading OGE, you uh, described him recently using the very technical term uh, loosey-goosey when <laughs> describing his approach to ethics in general. Do you feel that uh, OGE is uh, diminished? in the past couple of months since you've left? Well, it's relative. Um, that term is one that he used himself, although he now denies it, but just about everybody who ever worked with him heard him call himself that. Um, and so, yeah, I have some concerns about what's going on there, but I balance that against the fact that um, I don't know that anybody else could have come in and achieved anything. I, I'd been doing this for a decade and a half, and... Um, applied every trick and tactic and leverage that I could to get people to follow the ethics rules. Uh, OGE has a lot of authority, but no power. And authority, for instance, is when the judge issues an order, but power is when the US Marshals show up on your doorstep because you didn't comply with that order. So we had the authority to demand people do stuff, but we didn't have the power to back it up. And so I, I don't know that we'd be any worse off or any better off if I was there or if anyone else was there, because in the end it comes down to the only source of authority or power OG had, again, we had plenty of authority, was the White House Counsel's Office. And in 
the Bush administration, I could rely on Richard Painter and all of the people there. And the Obama administration, I had lots of support. Um, and they truly proved to me that ethics has no party. I could equally count on a Republican or, or Democratic White House to be supportive of the ethics program. But the whole program was predicated on OGE being able to call the White House counsel for help. And we would have cases where an agency or an individual didn't want to do something, and we would try to work it out. And if we couldn't, we'd call the White House counsel's office, and almost invariably, the next morning, there'd be a very nervous voice on the other end saying, what can I do for you? And, um, and they would have really gotten a talking to by the, by the White House, and they'd be whipped into shape. But in this White House, you know, the message was OGE, go jump in a lake, and we're not going to support you. And then all we have left is going public. And that was working for a while, but as they adapted by just cutting us off on all information, then there was nothing to go public with. And although we could send demands for documents and information, we couldn't send investigators marching in to go and seize it. Well, one thing I have the authority to do is open the session up to questions from the audience. So if you'd like to line up, there should be a couple of microphones around for anyone who'd like. We got about 15 minutes left. And while people line up very quickly, I'd love to get uh, from each panelist just to take, uh, there's been some chatter on Twitter and I've gotten some emails of people who knew about this panel, maybe watching it on the live stream right now. And so many uh, articulated in, in a different way. What can I do as a citizen of the United States to, to deal with any of the topics that, that we've discussed today, people expressing a lot of concerns that they feel like they are marginalized in some way uh, or don't feel that their government is representing them. Uh, start with Judge Starr and just very quickly move down the line. I think what they do is just say to your member of Congress in some uh, platform, I believe in the rule of law. No one is above all these basic foundational principles. And so would you please do your job in terms of supervisory hearings uh, or encourage your colleagues to do their job. I, as a citizen, want no person to be above the law. And I can agree or disagree with a particular policy, but we should also agree fundamentally that, as we used to say in the government, I hope they still do, we are to turn square corners. You don't jaywalk. <laughs> you don't walk against the light. You say, even if I disagree with this law, it is the law until changed. We want a rule of law administration. We want a rule of law Congress. Right. Uh, very quickly, Richard. I think it's important that we respect the truth and facts. Living in a world where there's alternative facts, <laughs> we just make up uh, massacres out of whole cloth, Kellyanne Conway's so-called Bowling Green Massacre, where the President of the United States says his predecessor was spying on him and then decides to accuse the, uh, uh, the British as well. I mean, the list goes on and on. We should not tolerate in our daily lives anyone who can't tell the truth. And we should not politicize the truth. Not a political issue. All right, let's let Bob Mueller get to the bottom of the truth here. And members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, should insist on finding out the facts. And that includes where the president's getting his money from, from the Trump Organization. Let's get the facts, let's get the tax returns, and then we'll figure out what to do. But no more ignoring the truth and no more lying. And I do not want to hear about one person lying again about their contacts with the Russians. If you'd done that in the Bush administration, you'd be in jail by now. <laughs> if, there is, um, if there's one thing that every American can do, there's a bill that's been introduced by two senators, Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican, and Chris Coons, a Democrat, 
to protect Bob Mueller from political interference and make it impossible for the president to fire him. Uh, call your senator, call your member of the House, call your congressman and tell them to support that legislation. I think it's the single most important thing uh, to, to ensure that this investigation goes to its natural conclusion. Uh, consistent with what Matt just said, I truly think that the biggest threat we're facing is any threat to Bob Mueller being fired. This is all that stands between us and not having a country based on laws. Frankly, if we get to the point where they do pull a Saturday night massacre, I'm gonna be in the streets, and I hope every last person is. Yeah. So let's start with my gentleman uh, to the left. And before you start, uh, just a note to anyone asking a question, please ask a question, do not make a speech, and, uh, and be concise. Go ahead. Uh, in order for the rule of law to have credibility, we have to have robust due process. And one of the questions I have about what we're seeing is that on the one side, there seems to be a dream team of, of lawyers with Mueller. And on the other hand, we have lawyers who are practicing outside of their expertise and having public conversations about private matters that are privileged. So going forward after this, what are your concerns to sort of the, the executive, uh, given that it's not clear that this is going to be a, a real fair fight, put it that way? Um, I, I want to answer that because I think that in our country, we don't have equal justice and that the folks with the most money can hire the best attorneys and get the best justice. So if these guys are hiring clowns who are sitting in a cafe talking about their case and being overheard, that's inexcusable because they are paying $1,500 an hour. Talk about a fair fight. The resources of the billionaire that they're going after far exceed any budget that Bob Mueller has. So I think we do have a fair fight because You've got very wealthy people who can hire very good attorneys. There's also mechanisms for setting up legal defense funds. And um, I am not opposed to legal defense funds as long as they're done correctly and in compliance with the laws. And so I think that is the answer is OGE needs to come out with some new guidance on legal defense funds. And there's a whole story that we don't have time to tell about why we don't have that right now, but they need to do that. I want to say one thing, that on a number of these matters, President Trump is represented by the United States Department of Justice at taxpayer expense, including on the emoluments clause cases, and the three separate emoluments clause cases about foreign government money coming to President Trump. He is defended by the United States Department of Justice. They have very good lawyers over there. They were not able to persuade some of the best lawyers in the country, including Kellyanne Conway's husband, George Conway. He wouldn't touch that, uh, that civil division job. And, and Richard, you, the crew has sued over the Emoluments we have Clause. Sued, we have sued over the Emoluments Clause of the United States Constitution. There are two other lawsuits. But those are being defended by the Justice Department. They have good lawyers over there. There are some excellent lawyers who will not take jobs working for Donald Trump. I wonder why. But um, he, uh, they do have good lawyers, very good lawyers in the civil division of the Justice Department who were there. Second, uh, uh, Donald Trump does have some financial resources. We don't know what <laughs> currency and what, how much. Uh, but I, I know enough to think he's probably ineligible to receive assistance from the legal aid clinic at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, I think that he has the resources to hire top flight lawyers and uh, you know, I don't know who these clans are, and 
a number of things I don't understand about them, including the mustache. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it's his business who he wants to hire, but he is lawyered up. A lot of them are lawyered up. Uh, uh, this is the most well-to-do uh, White House uh, we've had in decades. Uh, and so I, I don't really feel sorry for them in terms of their access to high-quality legal services. But you know, some really good lawyers don't want to work uh, for certain types of clients. Uh, for example, those that go and tweet out something that's exactly the opposite of what you just said on their behalf 24 <laughs> hours earlier. Um, and that, that's why Kellyanne Conway's husband is George. I mean, he actually went on the Twitter and he <laughs> said, you know, Mr. President, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so uh, I think a lot of these problems he's, made, he's brought upon himself. Well, let's move to the next question. We'll try to get as many speakers in, question askers as possible. Please. All right. So my name is Sam. Um, I just want to ask, um, so it's a bit of a speculative question to all of you. Uh, so assuming that the investigation is finished and the result, um, you know, directly, um, there's direct evidence of the president, you know, being uh, at fault and God knows how many offenses. Um, do you think the Republican Party in both the House and the Senate will have the moral gumption to stand up to, let's face it, it's going to be a lot of their base who are going to be saying this is the deep state, this is fake news, they're just trying to take down the person who's trying to make America great again. How do you think they're going to react? And if it's the worst case scenario, how do we react? I'll take it. I think it uh, depends on two things. Um, one is how hot the smoking gun is. Um, you know, if it's obstruction of justice, I think that's one thing, because obstruction of justice can, you know, it depends on corrupt intent. It can look different in the eyes of, eyes of the beholder, uh, versus if it's, you know, outright evidence that the president, you know, knew about interference in, in the election and encouraged it. I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, and that's really, it's, it's a, a straight political question, is What's Donald Trump's approval rating the day that Mueller produces such a smoking gun? If he's at 45%, I think you'll see the Republican Party excuse it, justify it, and probably overlook it. If he's at 28% because he's flailing about on other issues and he's starting to drag them down, then I think it's a much different situation. So I've got the five-minute warning, well, so uh, I say, real, real quick, and, the, and then we'll get to our next question. Real quick. As a Republican, though, I mean, there gotta be some moral values here, not just a bunch of opinion polls. And, uh, you know, if we can't do something about this administration, there's enough evidence already. We don't need to wait for Bob Mueller. There needs to be investigations in both houses of Congress. And if we don't get going, uh, we're going to be going the way of the Whigs, or you might say the way of the uh, New Jersey Generals and the United States Football League. Uh, it's going to be a disaster, and he's going to take us down. So it's our choice. I, I was going to make... Uh, no one can match Richard. I was going to make one point. The facts will drive this. And just as in Watergate, President Nixon's uh, very strong support, whether they liked him or not, had nothing to do with likability. When the facts pointed in the direction of obstruction of justice, his support collapsed. When Charles Wiggins of California said, I'm now convinced that at least for a period of time, the President of the United States engaged in an obstruction of justice, he resigned. It was over. So I do not think there will be a rallying around on partisan grounds. There will be just the facts. What are the facts? And uh, honestly, so many of the people who serve in the House of Representatives, all the acrimony, they are really good and honorable people. And they really want to do the right thing, as opposed to what do my 
uh, constituents want me to do. This is sort of a Burkean moment. You will be privy to the facts, and now we need your judgment. Please go ahead. Uh, my name's Adam. My question is, uh, what can be done to restore the broken ethics norms, and what can be done government-wise to prevent them from being broken again? They're all looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about tone from the top. And so I think we could fix it tomorrow if the president woke up, turned over a new leaf, and said, I'm going to divest all my assets. I'm going to stop selling my goods. I'm going to stop doing these things. Um, I, do, I don't see that happening. Um, but what I'm very concerned about, and this goes to a question you asked earlier about, well, should he just be allowed to do whatever he wants to do because people think they knew what they were getting? I don't think people knew what they were getting because I don't think this issue was explored. Uh, I think partly the media is to blame because they didn't think he would win, so nobody thought about how he would deal with it if he won. Um, but my big concern is, is this the new norm? And the longer it persists, the more it risks becoming a norm. Uh, and a lot is going to be on the shoulders of the next president. Um, and what we're at danger of is, let's say the Democrats put up somebody fairly unsavory, and they say, well, he got away with it, so you can't question me about it. And they'd be right. But we need somebody of good moral fiber to say, that was wrong, and I'm going to self-impose a level of structure on my behavior that restores norms, then this could just be an aberration. And so whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, I hope whoever comes next says, I am reinstituting these norms through my own behavior, and I challenge the press to pose that question specifically to each candidate during the primaries. Will you stand up to restore the ethical character of our executive branch. You'll have to be the last question, so make it a good one. Oh, God. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if, you know, if the investigation basically concludes some, you know, the worst and it, is, it undermines the legitimacy of a Trump presidency, right, and he ends up being shown the door, what does that... What does that say to the legitimacy of a Pence presidency who wrote in on that, you know, illegitimate wake or Orion presidency or anywhere down the line of succession? So what does that do to the legitimacy of the office of the president domestically, internationally, and how do we move forward from that? And I'd like all the panelists to address it. Uh, keep in mind that your answers stand in between now and happy hour, so. <laughs> now Let's start with Walton and go down the line. To yeah. us. Um, why don't we start in reverse order okay. so it comes back to you? Why don't we start in the middle? So I think the first, the, the first thing is it depends on what Mike Pence did, if anything. He seems to be strategically absent from a lot of important uh, uh, pieces, which is you know, not, not unwise on his part. <laughs> um, but look, I think when Donald Trump leaves, whether it's because he leaves before the, at the end of his term or when, when it's, uh, it's, it's because he's not reelected or he serves two full terms, the next president, as Walt said, is going to have enorm an enormous repair job to do uh, in this country. Um, it's not just repairing adherence to all the things we've been talking about, norms and ethics and rule of law. It's this common sense of decency. Uh, it's not picking fights with NFL players on Twitter. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I disagree with probably just about everything Mike Pence um, believes in, but I have to think that, you know, Mike Pence would, you know, approach just the, the common basic questions of how a president ought to behave differently than, than Donald Trump does. I'll volunteer to go next so I don't go after Richard. Um, <laughs> exactly. I, I think to answer that question, as Matthew just modeled, you have to go content neutral on the political beliefs of the individual. And so if we step away from the political views of Mike Pence or Donald Trump, and, and our concern right now is about Donald Trump's behavior, um, there are those who will fault Mike Pence for having been complicit in the sense that he was his vice president. Um, but I think what I could tell you is that I've met with both the attorneys in the White House counsel's office and the attorneys in Mike Pence's office when they came over to do the financial disclosure forms and so forth. And I would describe the attorneys in the White House as circus clowns and the attorneys in Mike Pence's office as real old-fashioned government attorneys. They have particular political beliefs, but if we look at this content neutral, this is an individual who has served in government, who's been part of government, who has um, a staff full of people who are consistent with the government culture in terms of their language that they speak and, the, and, their, and their behavior. Um, so I think that if we set aside the politics and look only at the behavior of the two, I think that if we had a Mike Pence presidency, people could argue over the policies and the politics and have very strong views, as Matt suggested, but I think we would be dealing with more of a traditional presidency where um, the question is, are you, are you freaked out by a candidate's views? Uh, or do you agree with the candidates use, but you're not concerned about the container being damaged and the container being the institutions of our, our representative form of government? So the Mueller investigation involves just the question of whether crimes have been committed. I mean, he is a special prosecutor and his job is to prosecute crimes. There are many other issues that fall outside of the scope of his investigation that I'm very worried about and that Americans ought to be worried about and that Congress ought to be worried about. Everything from the foreign government payments in violation of the Monuments Clause, which is not a crime. Uh, this business going back and forth with a, uh, a leader of North Korea acting like two school children in an argument and they're both playing with nukes. I mean, this is an extremely dangerous situation. A president who has said, at least on the campaign trail, and is not backing off it, that he's going to exclude people from entering the United States based on their free exercise of religion, a flat violation of the First Amendment. I mean, the list of problems goes on and on. Much of this is far outside the scope of the Mueller investigation. Uh, we need to have a Congress that is playing an active oversight role as contemplated by the Constitution. We need ba balances of power in this country. If they're not doing their job, they're going to have to get fired, the members of Congress. I mean, that's the next big decision that needs to be made. And I'd like to see more Republicans in there, but they've got to be Republicans that are doing their job, not just sitting on their can, and this is not working. <laughs> My view is that the American constitutional system is wonderfully resilient. Your question brought to mind the election of James Earl Carter, Jr. And in looking at what has happened over the last four years or the eight, or eight years, the American people tend to respond to voices that say, that was then we need a new day. 
but under our constitutional order. And the brilliant thing about Jimmy Carter's campaign, who was governor of a, what was viewed, then viewed as a very small state in the South, was that I will never lie to you. So there was a hunger for truth and honesty in government. That same hunger gave us the Ethics and Government Act of 1978 with these various and sundry provisions that we've, been talk, that we've been talking about. So I would say have confidence in the flexibility of the constitutional order, but also the basic goodness of the American people. And with that, everyone is welcome to go to the AT&T Center where you can have a happy hour. And please give a round of applause for our panel. Thanks for joining us.